As Shelton mentioned Frank and Cherry are at a reunion this weekend. Frank asked me to uh, fill in for him. Very practical study today that concerns all of us. You know, the Bible teaches that all human beings on the planet of accountable age and mind are under obligation to worship the one true God. It's mandatory. It's obligatory. And there are only five ways to do that. We call them the five acts of worship. Five avenues through which God authorizes you to approach Him and to express to Him your adoration, His worth, worship, worship. And the Lord's Supper is one of those ways. What a unique activity that has been created in the mind of God and given to human beings by Jesus Himself uh, even before he was crucified, and binding upon all people uh, ever since. So the more attention we give to this and understand what God expects of us, the more uh, we will be in a position to do what we ought to do and to please him. There are three accounts in, in our New Testaments of the actual institution of the Lord's Supper. There's Matthew's account, and there's Mark's account. And you remember Luke uh, makes it even clearer that uh, this was done by Christ in conjunction with the observance of the Jewish Passover. And he almost leaves the impression uh, that they overlap. You have to look at it very carefully to see uh, what exactly is going on. He, he states explicitly to the disciples uh, the importance of the Passover feast under Jewish law. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this pass over with you before I suffer. So notice that uh, partaking of the Passover consisted of uh, eating and it also consisted of drinking a cup. And I would suggest to you that that cup consisted of uh, grape juice. Notice how he words this. I say to you I will no longer eat of it until it is, and look at the term, fulfilled. That's different from what he says about the Lord's Supper and partaking with us. Well, what do you mean fulfilled? In what way was the Passover fulfilled? Of course, the Passover goes back to that death uh, angel, we call him, passing over the homes of the Jews uh, so that the firstborn of their families would not die. That's the original historical event. But God was pointing to the future, too, was he not? And no wonder Paul then states explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the fulfillment. Christ is our Passover. So that's the illusion that Jesus is making. Now notice he completes his comments about that, segues into the fruit of the vine that will be part of the kingdom, and thus commences to talk about the Lord's Supper. But prior to that, he's talking about Passover. Now he turns his attention to the Lord's Supper, which also consists of eating and drinking, bread and juice. So both the Passover and the Lord's Supper involved eating, followed by drinking. <clears throat> Jesus placed them back to back in order to emphasize that they were parallel events. One ultimately anticipated the other. So the Passover anticipated Jesus' suffering before the event, the Lord's Supper, 
is what we observe, which commemorates Jesus' suffering after the event. That brings us then to 1 Corinthians 11. Some years later, Paul is uh, writing a letter to a church of Christ in Corinth, and he recalls that night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and there is some powerful information in here that helps to guide our thinking and shape our uh, observance of the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, uh, by the way, that is an explicit reference back to Luke 22. Do this in remembrance. And then he takes the cup. Do this in remembrance. So there's the first thing we need to stop and think about with regard to the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It's a time for us to remember. That is very integral to what we are doing. Now think about this. If the New Testament teaches that you are to attend worship services, you are not to forsake the assembly of the church. And in Acts chapter 20 verse 7, we know that Christian worship occurs on Sunday, every Sunday. And while we're in that assembly of the church, we are to be remembering Jesus. Then if we do not attend that worship, we're not remembering Christ as he indicated he wants us to. Think of the churches in Christendom that partake of the Lord's Supper once a month, once a quarter, maybe at Christmas. Look at all the times that they are disobeying Christ by not remembering him like he said he wants them to do every first day of the week. That's a serious matter. And if you and I forsake the worship assembly for trivial reasons that are unacceptable to God, we too are failing to do as we have been commanded. So first and foremost, the Lord's Supper is a commemoration. It's, it's very central to remembering what Jesus has done for us. Well, what exactly do you think about? What are we, here we are sitting in the pew. Let's get very practical. And the men are up here and they bring the bread to us and, and then they bring the Jew. What are we supposed to be doing? You see, a lot of religion, even within Christendom, false religion, thinks that there's some sort of merit in the mere doing of something. So like, uh, if I just show up at church... I can punch my ticket, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm thinking about something else or whatever. The mere fact that I came gives me some sort of um, credit with God. The Bible does not teach that that's true. And if I just put the bread in my mouth and put the juice in my mouth, I've done what the Bible says to do. Not so. That is absolutely not the case. And this passage goes out of its way to stress that to us. Because we are supposed to be discerning the body. The body there doesn't refer to the body of Christ in the sense of the church of Christ. It refers to his physical body. Let me take you on a little excursion here with regard to Luke because he was a, a medical doctor. Uh, we're told that, for example, in Colossians chapter 4, he was a physician and when you read his two books in the New Testament, Luke and Acts, and do a little more technical analysis of, of his uh, writing, uh, 
Now they are, they are loaded with the um, terminology of the Asiatic medical schools of the day. That's astounding. How God could inspire men to write the New Testament, to write what He wants written, and yet incorporate into that their own peculiar vocabulary, education, background, style. That's one of the wonders of inspiration. So, when we go to um, Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, um, we find evidence of this. L let me give you a few examples, though, of where he uses medical terminology that the other writers don't use. For example, in Luke 22, only Luke refers, you remember whenever Peter cut off that high priest's uh, servant's ear, only Luke mentions the fact that it uh, uh, was healed. In Luke chapter 5, uh, he describes the leper with sort of a technical term for uh, medical doctors. He was full of leprosy. Luke chapter 6, only Luke notes that it was the right hand of the man who had a withered hand. It was his right hand. Notice the more technical observance by a physician. Uh, only Luke notes the healing uh, made the man whole, not merely uh, healed, but that he was restored to complete health is the idea there. Uh, moving into Acts, uh, he's the one that noticed, that calls attention to the, to the death of Agrippa being due to being eaten of worms. In Acts chapter 20, uh, you remember Eutychus, uh, uh, he kind of went through levels until he got into a deep sleep, and that's when he fell out of the window. And Luke uh, calls your attention to that. In Acts 28, he uses the medical word for uh, inflammation. In Acts 28, verse 8, Publius's father had uh, dysenteria. Dysentery. Uh, technical medical condition or terminology for a medical condition. So um, here is a medical doctor, and in his reporting of the Lord's Supper, and more specifically what Jesus endured in anticipation of our own observance of the Lord's Supper. Look how he describes the garden scene. They're in the Mount of Olives. The disciples are with Jesus. He tells them to pray that they not enter into temptation. Then he withdraws from them about a stone's throw, kneels down and prays. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. An angel appears, strengthening him. Now look how Luke uh, then gets technical. Being in agonia is the Greek word. He's the only one of the four that mentions Jesus' uh, mental anguish using that terminology. He prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood. He too is the only of, one of the four that uses any such terminology to describe what Jesus uh, was enduring. He's the only one that even uses the word for sweat, which was a much used medical term in the uh, medical terminology of the day. And he's the only one that refers to Jesus' sweat as thromboi hematos, drops of blood. Now look at this very carefully. Even ancient classical writers that preceded Christ by a number of years, Aristotle, Theophrastus, mention a medical condition uh, that consists of sweat becoming blood. 
Thromboy is the term for clots of blood. Again, a very technical medical term. Look what this uh, commentator said. As clots, thromboy means that the blood mingled with the sweat and thickened the globules so that they fell to the ground in little clots and did not merely stain the skin. But wait a minute. Doesn't the fact that he uses the word like, isn't he saying they didn't become blood, they were just like that? Well, as it so happens, Jose in this verse is referring to condition, not comparison. So a good, a good translation would be, his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. It's actually comparing the sweat droplets, which contain blood, with full drops of blood. That's how it appeared to be. Listen to Alford's Greek Testament. The intention of the evangelist seems clearly to be to convey the idea that the sweat was not fell like, but was like drops of blood, that is, colored with blood. For so I understand Jose as just distinguishing the drops highly colored with blood from pure blood. Was it pure drops of blood that fell from Jesus? No, but it looked like it because the sweat had been mingled with blood. To suppose that it only fell like drops of blood, why, why not drops of anything else? Why would you even compare it to blood? And drops of blood from what or where and where is to nullify the force of the sentence and make the insertion of hematos not only superfluous, but absurd. That's a good commentary or assessment of that situation. So what I'm suggesting to you is that Luke used specific medical terminology to refer to the severe mental distress that Jesus experienced, and therefore it is to be taken literally. That is, that uh, the sweat of Jesus became bloody. He's referring to an actual medical condition that Jesus endured. Is there any precedent for this? Is there any evidence that a person can sweat blood? Oh yes, a great deal. Let me show you a little bit of it to emphasize to you how critical this is in our understanding of what Jesus went through in anticipation of the Lord's Supper. Uh, this was the uh, dictionary that, that Deb used in uh, medical school, which was way back in the, I mean, uh, nursing school, which was way back in the Dark Ages. But I don't think the definitions have changed. Hematidrosis, excretion of bloody sweat. Here is uh, Dorland's medical dictionary. Excretion of bloody sweat. Here is Sagan's medical dictionary. An extremely rare condition characterized by the sweating of the blood, which is said to occur when a person is facing death or other highly stressful events. It has been seen in prisoners before execution and occurred during the London Blitz, when the Nazis were bombing, <laughs> bombing the fire out of, uh, out of London. Uh, the mechanism. Hematohydrosis is attributed to rupture of the capillaries surrounding sweat glands with oozing of blood into the gland and out of the sweat ducts. This condition has been reported in extreme instances of stress during the waning years of the 20th century. 76 cases were studied and classified into categories according to causative factors. You can read about all of this. 
Acute fear and intense mental contemplation were found to be the most frequent inciting causes. While the extent of blood loss generally is minimal, it does result in the skin becoming extremely tender and fragile, which would have been added to the suffering and pain that Jesus was enduring. You can go to our website to read more about this and then a number of sources that will be documented in that article if you're interested. Now what's amazing to me is, whether we realize it or not, we sing this. We sing this idea. Tis midnight and on all his brow. This entire song is not about the crucifixion. It's about the event that Jesus encountered in the garden. Look at the terminology. The man of sorrows weeps in blood. What does that mean? When you sing that song, what have you thought that meant? Because this is prior to the cross. Here's a song written uh, by a member of the church. He talks about when his son prayed all alone in Gethsemane and the burden of my sins dripped like blood from my Jesus. Again, that would be an odd comparison unless that actually occurred. What about night with Eben Pinion? You know that uh, uh, Eben is the word for black, so it's a black night, and, the, and this is all uh, figurative. Pinion is, uh, you know, the feathers of a bird. So he's depicting the night in the garden as like uh, a bird that just settles down, a dark black bird that settles down uh, on the scene. So it's figurative language, but notice it brooded over the veil. When Christ, the man of sorrows, in tears and sweat and blood. Well, Jesus had not been um, whipped yet. The scourging had not yet occurred, let alone the crucifixion. What blood are we talking about here? And the songwriter obviously understood. And again, this occurred in the garden. Look at, uh, moving now to the crucifixion. We don't have time to go into detail on this, but... Once the nails were, one through, apparently through both feet, and then one in each uh, wrist. Look what happens when the victim was uh, lifted into place. Just to show you how much pain and suffering Jesus went through. There's so many details. Look what happens when this thing drops in the hole. Look what that would do to your body with those nails. Your, your entire weight is suspended from these nails. And they drop you into that hole and it would cause the entire body to convulse. So, Jesus endured unbelievable torture prior to the cross and, and, and while going uh, through the cross uh, event. Uh, he was aware of the heinous nature of sin, its destructive and deadly effects, the sorrow and heartache that it inflicts, the extreme measure necessary to deal with it, all of this ought to motivate us when we think about Christ during the Lord's Supper to cause us to be very reverent, very humble, very saddened. We have to think about these kinds of things. That's what remembering the death of Christ consists of. That's why we're quiet when the communion trays are passed around. You know, uh, you think of denominational assemblies where all this hoopla and everything is going on. If they walked into our assembly when we were taking the Lord's Supper, they would say, man, what's going on here? They would not understand that what's going on is in our minds. And it's specifically commanded by God that we fill our minds with what took place. 
So it's far more than simply putting bread and juice in your mouth. It requires us to meditate, contemplate, and remember what Jesus suffered. And it's mandatory that we do that. What if we don't do this? What if we sit there, and, and I'll be the first to acknowledge, it is, it is very, very difficult to keep your mind focused. There's so many things that our minds split to. Uh, there are distractions within the assembly. What does the Bible say is the situation if we don't do this the way God intends for us to do it? Well, if we do so in an unworthy manner, we will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What, what does he mean by that? Well, do you remember the statement? Um, well, we'll come back to that in just a moment. So first of all, I'm just going to give you three points. Number one, the Lord's Supper is specifically intended as a commemoration where we remember. Now, going back to the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, look what else we're supposed to do. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You might think that that's something that the preacher do does. Well, he's supposed to. But every member of the Lord's church is doing this every Sunday. We announce. We're making an announcement. Who are we announcing this to? Well, to each other. To anybody that attends our assembly. By the way, to our children who are not even Christians. We're announcing to them what we're doing. They know that we're doing something during that period. They're aware of it. And then think of the people outside the building that are aware that that's what's taking place. This is a proclamation. We are announcing to the world the central event of human history and Christianity. Therefore, we are performing a critical function. Besides what we are getting out of it by getting closer to God in terms of uh, appreciating what He's done for us. Do you not see that every member of the church is also performing the critical function of uh, calling attention, getting the world to look at the incredible death of Christ? Islam has absolutely nothing like this. Nothing. And the, the way Christendom itself has minimized this activity, um, they are failing to do what God wants them to do every single week. God wants a proclamation every week. Critical event. To neglect that weekly proclamation is to hamper God's desire that his son's death be proclaimed. And notice the terminology that Jesus used that Paul refers back to. When Jesus said, this is the new covenant, my blood. So you see, we're also proclaiming that. We're, we're announcing that you do realize there is a covenant, a a, an arrangement, that, an agreement that God has made with humanity. And you're under obligation to come into that covenant to receive its stipulations and to submit to it. The new covenant is the religion of Christ. There is no other religion that God approves of on the planet. This is it. And the Lord's Supper is a way that we predict, we uh, proclaim it and point people to it. This is the one true religion of Christ. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're doing that. We're doing that. We're also in, in, indirectly proclaiming His return. Because we're to do this right up to His return, and we're to do it in anticipation of His return. 
So the second coming of Christ is tied into this critical activity that we do every Sunday of partaking of the Lord's Supper. And therefore, if we're inconsistent on that, we are inconsistent in our anticipation of His return. That's not good. These are important features of the Christian religion. How dare we silence this proclamation or hamper its function by our neglect. So, the Lord's Supper is a commemoration, it's a proclamation. Look what else it is in this same passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Let a person, uh, first of all, uh, do not partake in an unworthy manner. I mentioned that just a moment ago. And don't, notice that none of us are worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. That, that's not what this is talking about. Uh, the older translations had unworthily. Newer translations go ahead and put in the word manner to make it clear. We're not talking about the condition of the worshiper in terms of their spiritual status or value or worth. It's talking about the manner in which the action is engaged in. So we must have an attitude, a spirit of submission, humility, and respect. We are to be thinking about the things that God tells us to think about when we observe the Lord's Supper. There's the worthy manner that He wants from us. And if we do not do so, we are guilty. I mentioned that earlier. What are we guilty of? Well, the text says concerning the blood and body of the Lord. So you're telling me that you and I can be guilty of the death of Christ on the cross because when we're sitting here partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're not doing it with the correct frame of mind? That's what the passage says. Remember the terminology that the Hebrews writer used? We can crucify the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. That's pretty graphic. We would not want to be guilty of repeating that over and over. All right, the final point, let a person examine himself. So notice, not only are you thinking about Christ and what He's done for us, you're thinking in terms of, okay, so... How am I conducting myself? You know, how, how am I behaving? Uh, you would think about how you've been living. Am I striving to live the Christian life? Am, am I obeying God every day? Am I, am I focusing on spiritual things, praying, uh, reading His Word? Am I devoted to God every day? Am I, am I facing up to my shortcomings? Have I done things that I've not rectified with God or with my fellow man? Am I a spiritually focused person? So really the Lord's Supper, this is one reason why we shouldn't hurry through it. We've got a number of things to do while we're partaking. While we're waiting for the bread to be brought to us and the Jews. We're not to just be sitting idle. We're to be doing these things. Thinking. Thinking about Christ and thinking about our own spiritual condition. The Lord's Supper is the is one of the appointed moments in your life that God has assigned for you to take self-inventory and determine whether or not you're being faithful to God. We ought to be doing that all the time, every day. But God enshrined it into a specific memorial event every first day of the week. That's astounding. And look at it in the context of what God has done for me. Lord's Supper is a commemoration, a proclamation, and an examination. One final point, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, 
eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what do we, what do, we do when we discern? That word means to visualize, to reflect upon, to think about. So to discern the body of Christ means to visualize it, to think about it, to reflect, to ponder what his body went through in our behalf so that we will not have judgment brought upon us. What is judgment? Condemnation. Be condemned. People are going to be condemned because of their failure to partake of the Lord's Supper and to partake of it correctly. We can be forgiven of all of our sins if we repent. But do you not see that this is a very, very important passage? This is, in fact, serious business. This really, of course, living the Christian life is serious business. But partaking of the Lord's Supper is so important. We must discipline our minds to focus. We must do everything we can to not distract others. Think about that. I elbow my wife and say, did you leave the burner on? Did you leave the oven on? Harmless. And yet, if we're there supposed to be concentrating on the Lord's Supper, I've just diverted her from that. You want to be guilty of that? I feel from others that have children that, <laughs> that uh, it's difficult to worship when you've got little children. All the more reason to discipline them and teach them to train them to be still and to not intrude into the worship that we are attempting to give to our God. All right, may God help us to remember, proclaim, and examine. I urge you to go home today and read 1 Corinthians 11 and give more thought to this. It's a very, very serious matter. Lord willing, tonight I would like to talk about the juice that we drink. You ever had anybody talk about that subject? You know, there are churches. There are churches of Christ that use fermented Grape juice. Is that okay? We'll spend a little time talking about that. Lord's plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, be immersed in water. And as once a person has become a Christian, we simply repent of sin, confess it, and pray for forgiveness. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we urge you to do that while we stand and sing. There's a fountain now flowing from the cross of Calvary, where the sinner through mercy can be cleansed and be set free. There our Savior gave his lifeblood, made a way for you and me. But the time is swiftly passing, leading through eternity. There's a fountain flowing now, and will cleanse every stain. Come back home, 
Pilgrim, come, he is calling your name. We've no promise of tomorrow or to see the rising sun. Won't you hear his tender pleading? Welcome home, my child, well done. Soon this life here is over. Sinner, what will be your fate? If you wait till he calls you, it will surely be too late. Have you made your preparation for the great eternity? There's a fountain gently flowing and it flows for you and me. There's a fountain flowing now and will cleanse every stain. He is calling your name. We've no promise of tomorrow. And we see the rising sun. Won't you hear his tender pleading? Welcome home, my child, well done.